The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So a few uh, weeks ago, uh, it was a crazy week with, with the passing of, of Wyndham Rotunda. And of course, the day before that, the passing of, of Terry Funk. And, of, and Terry Funk, uh, widely regarded as possibly the greatest of all time. Uh, Dave Meltzer is here, not just a huge fan of Terry's work, but also a very good friend. Why, why don't we just start out with that? Is it, is it even possible to pinpoint who's the greatest of all time? Because you certainly could make a case for Terry Funk being one of the greatest of all time, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I hate to have one person because so many people are good at different things. Right. But the one thing, you know, I would always say about Terry Funk was I thought that, like, as an instinctive wrestler, you know, who didn't plan things out much and studied and did a different thing in every match. I thought he, he may have been the best I've ever seen at that, you know, but again, I was like backstage with him several times at shows and just watching him peek through the curtain and just kind of, they're going for this. They're not going for this. And I could see, like, he didn't really say it loudly, but I could see in his head. It's like, he's formulating the match in his head, watching the, the fan reactions during the undercard, which I just found really fascinating mm-hmm. again. Like, you know, his, his matches were never the same. You know, he could do every style well, and obviously was a great promo guy. I mean, he, he he has to be one of the greatest of all time. I mean, like saying, as far as saying anyone is the greatest of all time, it's, it's really hard for me to do, especially now, you know, after, you know, the last 15, 20 years with so many great guys that have come along. But, but he's got to be in the conversation and just um, the versatility. I mean, I think his versatility was, was just incredible. He could do any kind of a match, you know, and, and like you. You know, he had the reinvention thing going mm-hmm. because if you look at pictures of Terry Funk from every five years, it's a different guy. I mean, different look and and it, and to an extent, a different guy and a different guy, depending on the circumstances. You know, if he was at home in Texas, he's the ultra super baby face. He was at home in Japan. He's in Japan. He's a different kind of a baby face. But like the American John Wayne, you know, cowboy character that the Japanese were in love with, he became the wrestling version of that. And then in other places, he was, you know, really one of the greatest heels that there ever was. You know, I mean, he was the greatest opponent that Dusty had. Um, he was probably the best opponent that Jerry Lawler had. The local superstar babyface, he'd go in there and he could talk and he could, you know, and sometimes he would team with them, you know, when the angle called for it, but still keep the heat to where they could come back and do business, you know, with the feud, you know, they could do the feud at any times. And so clever, you know, him and Eddie Graham, the stuff that, that happened in Florida, you know, at the time, it's like a lot of the stuff is stuff that 
you know, it's been done a lot because they did it first. But I just remember like when um, when they finally put the world title on Dusty with Harley Race, you know, it was going to be one of those one week things. But nobody knew that at the time. And so before, you know, they'd had, they'd gone about a week and then they were in Orlando and Terry Funk, who's you know not even advertised on the card, shows up and and breaks Dusty's arm before his match with Race, hmm. which was to me such a brilliant angle because. Dusty loses the title in Florida where he's the king, but everyone gets, you know, like Terry Funk broke his arm. He tried to work a match with a broken arm, with a freshly broken arm. Right. And it revitalizes. So, so he still can go against Harley race and people still believe he can beat him. And, you know, he's got more reason to go after Terry Funk than ever before, because you know how big that world title was considered in those days. And Dusty had spent five years as a babyface chasing that thing. He finally wins, you know, all is good. These fans in Florida have been waiting forever for this moment, get the moment. And then the rug is pulled out of him a week later, which is very, as you know, it's very dangerous to a babyface to do it that way. Sure. But because of Terry, it worked. Well, another thing about Terry too, and, and you, you kind of mentioned it at the beginning and I, and I read your piece in the observer, which of course I'm sure is you're going to have a much longer career retrospective, but yeah. he, he, and and people say this about me, and I, I did take it from Terry to a certain extent, was really good at staying relevant throughout the ages. And that a lot of it, you said looking at him every five years, he looks different, but his wrestling style changed. I mean, a lot of people will say, and I won't say I'm not comparing myself to Terry Funk, but just say that Jericho and AEW is the modern day version of Terry Funk and ECW, where you get this guy who is this legendary performer, not, not that I'm saying that I am, but he came into this new company and gave him a totally new life by working with all of the younger guys and also switching his style to ingratiate that with the younger guys. It wasn't like an old guy coming and going, this is the way we're doing things, brother, because of my, it's like, well, tell me how it works for you guys. Then I'll sprinkle in my shit. And suddenly we've got like an older guy and a younger guy wrestling kind of a modern style. Terry was great at that for so many years. Yeah. I mean, the thing also is that he was in so much pain between the knees and the back in particular, you know, really during so many of those periods where people just laud. And I just remember like, you know, seeing him on the trainer's table and, and the other wrestlers going like, oh, man, Terry's having trouble walking. He's not going to be able to do this. You know, you're going to be disappointed in the match. And he would come out and it was just like he would get himself in the zone. Right. And he'd come out and it's like he wasn't playing wrestler and he wasn't doing moves. He was like the guy from the minute he walked through the curtain. I mean, he was just like, you know, one of those guys where and he even told me that it's like the minute you walk through the curtain, you're this guy. And every movement, you know, just the way he would warm up in the corner would kind of be like stretching like an athlete and things like that before the match would start. But just always like this thing. And every bump was not a, a normal bump. It was just slightly different from normal. Enough to where you just like noticed everything he did was unique. But when he was in yeah, in ECW, I thought that he was so valuable because they Paul Heyman had a lot of guys that were that were very talented, but they were not national stars or anything like that right at that point in time you know terry was a legend in the business and everyone respected him as a legend and he came in and he worked with those guys and worked with them and again he adapted to what they did what sabu did was nothing nobody when terry funk was 30 or even 40 or even 45 was doing what sabu did and instead of a lot of guys would just go this is stupid and i'm not doing it he did it and he tried to keep up with them he started doing moonsaults instead of saying, oh, you know, 
nobody would do that. It's a whatever, whatever. I mean, he started doing that in his fifties, I believe, you know, or yeah, it was because it was his, yeah, his, his, his fifties. Yeah. You know, he would adapt, like he started doing the real hardcore stuff at a further degree than they could in the seventies because it was just a different business. But the whole thing of, of putting over like Shane Douglas, Sabu, Public Enemy, you know, Raven, all of those guys got credibility because they were going back and forth with him. Um, I think that it helped the ECW title when they put it on him, you know, even though he was older, you know, it was a great story. Terry Funk, one last try for the world title and then finally winning, which was the number two match on their first pay-per-view. Heyman always had the thing like, it's like, you don't want a company, you know, like which some companies have been where it's, you know, you go, you know, you know how the companies are where it's, let's take every ex WWE guy that we can right. and try to make a company because they were or an ex WCW TNA did made this mistake, right? Any, anyone who's available. So you have all these guys who are older and past their prime and they're all on top, but it's like an, almost a nostalgia show. Mm-hmm. Whereas Paul was always like, give me one guy, you know, and, and, and he even did this, he even said this to Dixie Carter once when he came in, he goes like, I want all the old guys gone except for one. And I don't care who it is. You know, you pick Sting, you pick Nash, whoever. I want one old guy who's going to be my Terry Funk or my Bruno San Martino. Right. But I don't want a whole company of them. I want the rest of the company to be new guys and young guys that can do that. So, and I think that Paul got that from Bruno San Martino. And that was kind of, Terry's role was different from Bruno. But as when Paul was a child uh, or was younger, a teenager, actually, you know, Bruno would come in and and that was like all the older fans remembered him, but the younger fans are just like, this guy's a legend. And in ECW, all those fans knew Terry Funk, the Funk brothers. Yeah. When we were growing up, because they're these fans are all in their 30s now. When we were growing up and we were kids, the Funks in Japan and the Funks with Dusty Rhodes and, and all that, they were legends. And then they were there, you know, show after show, Terry in particular, and he could promo. And and yeah, yeah, I thought he was super valuable. He was always valuable in, in certain ways, even when he would go to you know, when you probably would have worked with him in or, or around him with, with WCW and then WWE, you know, when he was there for a while, it was um, he was that legend that every everybody respected him. I never heard anyone like badmouth him or anything like that. And you couldn't because he was too good of a performer. You know, it's interesting, too, like even prior to the ECW was when Cornette brought Lance Storm and I to Smoky Mountain to kind of like it was kind of the wine and us and to, to impress us. And it was a really big show at the Knoxville civic center. And Terry was wrestling. I think it was bullet Bob Armstrong and he threw all the chairs. And I remember watching with Lance, the place just seemed massive at the time. It probably had 5,000 people. We went back there years later and it looked like it had been like in a trash compactor. It was like, how did it get so small? Cause at the time <laughs> it was so big. Right. And I remember he threw all the chairs and I could be getting this wrong. This is just my memory. And bullet Bob was down. If it was bullet Bob, I think it was. And when he climbed up on that rope, I'm like, there's no fucking way Terry Funk is going to do a moonsault. And boom, there he goes. And I was like, oh, he did a moonsault. I think it was the first time he ever did one. And I remember thinking what possessed Terry Funk in 1994, which I think he was 50 or 49 yeah. to do a moonsault on this show because it wasn't televised it wasn't like it was wrestlemania but it was just it blew my mind like wow this guy's really going outside the box to to impress and it's terry funk he doesn't have to do anything yeah and i always remember that to this day i'm doing some of these things even with the bandito match i had last year of doing some of this stuff where it's like terry funk would do it so why not yeah, he would you know right he would and i mean the, the, the funny thing is is when we, when we bring terry funk never worked for um, one of the Mexican promotions 
You know, this is this would be like 93, 94. Right. Well, he, he was working ECW at the time. I remember when um Pena, you know, like is basically the big angle with Conan, which ended up being with Jake Roberts, that's that sold out Los Angeles and and you know was set up and you know to be this this giant feud. I remember it came down to Terry Funk or Jake and Pena because he was a big WWE fan. Jake was such a big star, so I and and more recent, so he just felt that Jake was the guy, and Conan was just like, no, Terry, because with Conan and Jake was going to be a tough match to do, but Terry would figure out a way to have a good match with anyone. He would just figure it out. One of the things that I always will remember was um, he had the feud in um, you know eighty five ish. I'm going to guess with uh, Junkyard Dog, and I mean. I never saw any junkyard dog matches that good. <laughs> right. I mean, it was like it's like a one man show, but not not like a one man show. Like you can see, oh, this guy's putting on a one man show. I mean, it was just like incredible matches where he would just take. You know, it was like he was doing Kurt Hennig stuff. You know what I mean? Like right. just every little thing and and just brilliantly and given of his body. I mean, he was hurting, and you know how the schedule was then. I mean, it's not like now. I mean, those guys. I, I mean, I remember once when when I think it was Oakland. I'm almost sure it's Oakland and I'm out of the building and the show had just ended and, and he was, he, and he wasn't the only one, but he was hurting so bad. He told me he'd been on the road like 28 straight days, but he was going home in the morning and it's just like 28 days. God, but he put on an incredible match anyway, you know, with all of the different things, you know, that he had to do because that was just him. He, he had great empathy for the fans and, and giving the fans, you know, far more than their money's worth. I mean, that was kind of what he would always talk about was like he grew up kind of as a fan, but, you know, as the son of a wrestler. And the mentality was, you know, that all the that wrestling's always getting knocked. Right. So he always and his father taught him to do a lot of charity work in the community, because if you do. The community will embrace you. They will like you. Even if they don't think wrestling's real, they're not going to knock you if you do a lot of charity work. So they always did help the, the, the boys ranch and things like that. They all did. He had that, but also, you know, like you go to school and, oh, your father's a fake and all that. But the people who liked him, you know, they would get teased and, and he would probably get teased. And it was just like he had great empathy for the idea of, you know, you grow up as a wrestling fan and the other kids tease you and everything like that. And he just wanted to always he was very giving you know like like his big angles and and his stuff was always about the company it was never oh i'm gonna do this or i'm gonna do that it was always like okay the company's down what can i do to turn the company around you know like right and when new japan was on fire with tiger mask and anoki and fujinami and shoshu it was just like he went crazy and that's where the retirement ceremony first came in because we need something drastic because they got something that's like way ahead of us but like, I also will remember, you know, like, like he was so open-minded when it came to wrestling and knowledgeable. I remember when, when I was in Japan, I saw, you know, someone who I thought was an obscure British wrestler who was awesome named Keith Hayward. And I saw him the next day and I go, I saw this guy, Keith Hayward. I'd never heard of him. And he starts, oh, amateur great. And this and this and this he goes, the guy had never been in the United States. He only worked in England and, and Terry knew all about him, mm -hmm. but he was always, you know, just like got to go see the all Japan women. You got to go see the all Japan women, you know? And it's just like, everybody else was just like, why are you wasting time seeing that? That's just some show for teenage girls. You know, guys don't go to that. Right. right, right, right. And he just goes, you, you got to go, you got to go. You're going to learn if you go. It was the same way. You know, he, he always had that, you know, always try to watch the independence because guys are going to try shit out on the independence. And then three years later, it's going to be 
in WWE or WCW or, or now AEW, you know, like whether it's the moves or just the mentality or the fan reactions, it was always like stay ahead of the curve, you know, because if you're, if you just stay, you know, right. You know, guys, I mean, it's sad. If you never learn things change real rapidly in the business, you know, and you, I mean, you know, better than anyone because, you know, in some ways you're the, I don't say you're the Terry Funk because it's, you're, you're completely different, but your match with Bandito, like, I, I mean, I just remember that, you know, where it was just like, you didn't have to do that much, but your job there in your mind, I, I suppose, I can't, I don't want to speak for you is I'm getting this guy a job here because he's really good. Right. You know, it wasn't about, oh, I'm going to go out there and have a great match for myself. It was like, you know, what you could have done, the guy's talented, but it was so much watching that, like, my God, he is trying to make sure that everyone notices this guy. That that is what Terry Funk was like. It comes from a Terry thing too. You you mentioned once again in, in in your piece that you wrote, the shorter one, about how he would, like you just said, he would tell you like keep an eye on this company or keep an eye on this guy. You know, like if you look like at the beginning stages of AEW with Sammy Guevara, or you're talking about Darby Allen, or you're talking about Jungle Boy, like these guys, like Orange Cassidy. Yeah, you can see like okay, there's something to these guys. Let me do some work to get them to the next step. And Terry was really good at that. And also with the styles. Now, let me ask you this, because there's no way we can discuss a whole Terry Funk career in an hour and change. But from my era of Terry Funk, I didn't see a lot of seventies or eighties Terry. It's nineties Terry. And a lot of that was, was Japan. And, and obviously the famous death match tournament. And you mentioned that like he became this hardcore brawler in ECW and in Japan because in the seventies and early eighties, whatever, you couldn't do that. But how influential was, was he to the, I know it was the IWA. I'm not sure if he worked for FMW as well, but definitely. He did with Onita, the, really okay. the real famous explosive match with Onita. Yeah. There you go. That's right. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's the famous one where the ring blew up and they, yeah. Onita covered him afterwards. Yeah, because Onita, Onita and Terry were very, very tight. Terry was like um, his mentor. When Onita came to the United States, Terry kind of like guided him to which territories to go and everything. So they were very close. And then, you know, when Onita started his promotion, you know, he brought Terry in and Terry working anywhere but new japan was something different and then they did the match they did the you know the angle for the match and then in the end when onita covers terry which was really is more for onita than terry it was like is that that really got onita over because you know they all loved terry funk he'd been on their tv (laughs) for for over 20 years and had gone from you know the most hated heel in japan or one of the most to probably the most beloved baby face I don't think people really know the story of of kind of how he did it, but it was using Japanese real life because he went there in the late sixties and he, he did this thing where he had a relative who was shot down in the war in world war two. Right. And he'll never forgive the Japanese because you know, one of his relatives was killed in the war Uh and he used that. And, and the Japanese, of course, the war was such a touchy issue. So they hated him. And then later he went to like the museums, you know, where the, the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima. Right. And, and he would cry. And I mean, and which was, which was legit in the sense, because he told me the same thing in the sense that he really learned a lot. And by realizing that there's two sides to the story, the Japanese realized, you know, like us in America, it's like, we're not that far apart. And as the Japanese in America stopped being, there was no cold war anymore and everything like that he and some of the others, but he was like the the guy who, you know, I don't say he was a national symbol, but he was a symbol to the wrestling fans of the fact that Americans aren't so bad. 
you know, and, and they're not all evil. Yeah. And we, and we can all learn from each other. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When he started doing it, to go back to the Deathmatch tournament with McFoley, kind of is what made McFoley. Was that was that kind of the first of its kind in, in Japan for that level of Deathmatch violence in 94, whenever it was, 95? Yeah, that, that stadium show, was. it was a very unique show at the time. I mean, they would have Deathmatches, but they would never have, and there was no show ever like that. The whole thing with that, you know, you would think that Terry would win. Terry was so much of a bigger star than anyone else, but you know, he took Mick and, you know, yeah, he made Mick into a star in Japan. And, and even in the United States, the cult thing, you know, with Mick that really boosted him because everybody heard about, or insiders all heard about the death matches and, and the uniqueness of that show for the time. I mean, you know, he did a lot for Mick. Yeah. He loved Mick. He really did. And once again, just while we're talking about him in, in, in Japan, talk about the Funk Brothers in Japan and how much of an influence they had, because I know there was a lot of uh, emphasis on them with New Japan and All Japan and, and all the kind of business between the two. So one of the greatest foreign names of all time would be the Funk Brothers as a team and also Terry as, as a singles as well. When, when Baba went on his own, the company in the United States that he really tried to align with, I guess because of Dory Jr. Had, had become a very big star in Japan because he was the world champion when the world champion meant a lot and on television had great matches with Bob and Anoki. Mm -hmm. And Terry was the younger brother and, and, of course, the father. So they were all there. And politically, you know, Dory Sr. was very strong politically. So when Baba started All Japan, Dory Sr. was like his conduit. And then Dory Sr. died in 73. So it became Dory and Terry doing a lot of the booking. You know, they would book the foreign talent. And then at first they were heels and then when they feuded with Abdullah and the Sheik, you know, they became big baby faces, but, um, you know, like the, the iconic early tag team tournament, you know, was the Sheik and Abdullah against the Funk brothers. And then, uh, Bob and Saru and the Funk brothers and the Funk brothers with Brody and Jimmy Snuka first, and then Stan Hansen, that whole tag team tournament thing, you know, it was probably an idea. Hey, let's try this tag team tournament in 1977. And it went over, especially the final so big that here we are. 46 years later and it's it's institution there let's talk about him in, in the states i mean like you mentioned there's so much work that he did and obviously wcw and then you know with with flair and, and other stuff with with lawler in memphis but just to kind of go in to start why didn't terry ever work for vince during the heyday in, in the 80s he was at the right age in his prime I know that they were there for a short period of time, but kind of talk about Terry and, and Vince and what their relationship was with the WWF. You know, it's funny because Bruno had always told me how much he wanted to work with Terry. Right. I don't, I, I mean, I really don't have a good answer. I think probably it's because, you know, they wanted like a six, seven month run and Terry was always going to Japan and he was so aligned with Japan. So I think that that's probably why he never worked with Bruno. Now with Backland, he was supposed to go. It was all set up. And then, for some reason it fell through and that's why Patterson got the famous four main events at the garden in a row, you know, which nobody ever got is because Terry was supposed to be the last two. Hmm. And I don't know why he pulled out. I didn't know if it was schedule. 
I don't know if it was a movie thing, you know, because he was doing a lot of acting back then. Right. And he was always going on auditions. So it could have been like an acting thing popped up. But yeah, that was the time he's supposed to go. And then he went in, you know, 84, 85, whatever that period was, like, because he had WrestleMania 2. And he was there. I feel it was like a year. And it was a very, very hard year because the travel was just brutal and he was hurting. And I think he just went until, you know, he, his body needed the rest. And then he he went home because he did the world title thing for, for the NWA, which was the original brutal travel thing. And he said that the Vince thing in 84 and 85 was much harder physically or or just the travel was much harder. You know, I thought, oh, my God, because the world title thing, you know, broke most of the guys who held that title, you know, going from place to place year round, very little time at home, you know, like that. But you would think that, you know, once again, like uh, you going through the, the list of opponents and, and Terry wasn't tall, but he was beefy and he was big and he was believable. I mean, Funk versus Hogan in 87, 86 would have been a draw, I'd have to say. I mean, you think that Vince would have gone out of his way to try and find Terry and, and provide him with with what he wanted to get in there? Well, he, he he was there, but they brought him in for whatever reason. They brought him in as a tag team. And you know how like Vince's mentality in the 80s was with the tag teams. They were at a certain level. And Terry did work with jyd you know that was like true, yeah. his big opponent he worked a match in tampa with hogan for a saturday night's main event that actually i would have to look it up but and i will this you know when i write the story but i believe it was the second highest rating in the history of saturday night's main events which because of the you know they had the two prime times so it's probably one of the five most watched television matches of all time but he did do that match and it was really really good but for whatever reason i mean they didn't go with the sing- a big singles program around the horn you know for two months they you know hogan beat him on in that match and and terry was more of a, a tag guy. i think because terry was over 40 you know vince had that thing in in, in that era you know it's like once you're over 40 you're 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 done i mean he even had that with hogan you know which was probably a huge mistake yeah, yeah. <laughs> savage too yeah. yeah yeah and roddy piper you know because they had a lot of guests left to imagine <laughs> chris jericho <laughs> i know but you know, maybe, you know even 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 with you it's like he employed you and he used you well because you always could get over but it was like in hindsight especially after year one of AEW, we can i can look back and go man you could have done a lot more after 2008 there not that you didn't do well but you know what i'm saying yeah Totally, totally. And I remember too is uh the Funk brothers and it was Haas Funk. Haas and then Funk. Jim and then Jimmy Jack Funk was there for a bit too. Yeah, Jimmy Jack Funk was kind of Terry's replacement when he went home. And Haas, a lot of people were pissed at, at the Haas Funk name because Dory Funk Jr. was so well known and you know, really a great, great star, you know, in his era. Mm. But the thing was is number one, Vince hates the term junior. So that was out. Right. And I'm just thinking that that he probably didn't like the name Dory. <laughs> Either <laughs> I lay it was when it first happened, it was just like, oh God, you know, it's like some bonanza cartoon name. But I didn't realize that when when Dory played college football, that was his name, you know, his nickname was was Haas Funk. So when Vince probably said, I don't want Junior, I don't want Dory, is probably it had to be him. Just go, oh, then college they called me Haas, you know, because it was just like, you know, and they wore the cowboy hats, and it's like, oh God, you know, <laughs> some character from the 60s bonanza TV show. Let's uh, talk about his other run there that I recall, which was the Chainsaw Charlie, which I didn't really understand. Wearing <laughs> no, kind of did. a mask. And like, once again, it's Terry Funk, man. Like, come on. And everybody knew. Everyone knew. That's right. And honestly, that's probably his idea. He probably, because Terry had wild ideas all the time. Oh, yeah. And uh, you just always, you know, he would just have these wild and crazy ideas. I always thought like, um, 
Terry and Dory as bookers together was kind of a cool thing because Dory was so straight edge, you know, Lance Storm type of thing mm -hmm. where it's logical and, 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 you know, you know, it's great, but it's not like wild and crazy thoughts. And Terry was filled with those thoughts. But if you mesh the two, you kind of have the one guy trying to keep it within a wrestling framework and the other guy throwing out ideas. But Terry was always, he had all these kind of crazy ideas. And I think that was one of them was just like chainsaw Charlie and he came out there and probably didn't realize that the world had changed to the point when Terry would, would go into territories and wear masks. And in those days, you know, he would change his style enough and cover up his body and people wouldn't know it's Terry Funk until he got unmasked. Right. So, but he's going in WWE and the minute he comes out, everybody, everybody knew it was him. So it was kind of like, what was the purpose of this? Talk about the, the dumpster getting thrown off the stage. Because I remember when that happened, uh, you would think that they had actually probably had worked it a bit and protected, but it, they basically just threw those guys off with, with no protection. Yeah, he got hurt in that one. Did he? He told me he lost the ability to flex one of his buttockses, because I don't remember if it's the left side or the right side, but I remember afterwards, and he just said, that was a really bad idea, and we should have tried to make it safer and practice that. I don't think he was ever bitter about it. He didn't like complain about Vince, but he did, you know, or anything about it, but just that it was a really bad idea and he didn't realize it would be such a bad idea and, and he got hurt. Yeah. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. So let's talk more about his probably his most famous run in the States, at least for the modern time, would be WCW, correct? In, in, in the 89? 89. Would that be his best run in the States? On a national basis, yes. He was the man with Ric Flair for whatever it was, uh, five months, six months from the first angle, which was the angle was May. And then the I quit match was November. Yeah. He, he worked uh, several pay-per-views on top and house shows every night with Ric Flair. You know, it's funny because it was the best business that WCW ever did until whatever it would be like 95 ish or 96 when they started, you know, once, once Hogan was in and WCW really turned around, but from, from that period, from the start of WCW until then, the, the Flair Funk thing was the hottest program business-wise that they ever did. And I remember before the um, the angle, and he was just like, he's older. He was 45 or 44, actually, because he turned 45 during the, you know, right after the angle was shot. Mm -hmm. he, it was almost like they don't understand it's going to draw money. He goes, I tell them it's going to draw money, but they don't understand. But it's going to draw money. You know what I mean? He just was like adamant that he got this one. I know this one. It's going to draw money. He he knew how to, Flair became his Dusty. So he knew how to talk with the banana nose and all of that stuff, you know, all these interview ideas that he had. He just knew that this was going to work. And it did. And they had, you know, it turned Flair babyface real strong and um, did great business. You know, like obviously that I quit match is, you know, one of the great I quit matches of all time. Well, yeah, you think about that period. It's, it's Flair and Steamboat and it's Flair and Funk. Yeah. Would kind of be the two marquee matchups, and even even Funk pile driving Rick on the table. I mean, that's kind of one of the first ones of the uh, of table bumps that I can never recall 
hearing of at least he's a pioneer when it came to that even it had been done in memphis with savage and ricky morton but that's memphis right nobody'd seen it right so when he did it you know the pile driver was so feared and so doing it on a table that didn't break and even if it broke it probably would have worked just as well but the mentality was never to break the table it was to do it on the table but yeah it was like the first time i think on a national basis they did a pile driver on a table and the idea was that rick would be injured and his career would be in jeopardy and he'd be out of action for a couple months to build for the you know the first match which was the baltimore match you know and have the doctor out there talking about the damage and i mean the funny part was is you know rick had had neck injuries prior to this so the doctor's out there and he's when he's talking about the damage it is all legit but it wasn't from the pile driver obviously but you know you had this doctor out there and just going through you know like uh you know how bad and you know rick's neck was and you know rick training for his big comeback and funk just being completely crazy on tv with the job guys and everything like that and i'm sure a lot a lot of that was was funk's you know mentality because he was he was really on during that period. I mean, I wish the body could have held up better because their, their feud would have gone longer if his body was able to hold up more. That was really the reason that it went the way it was is, you know, he just was doing so much and, and everything, but his knees and back were shot from his back, probably mid eighties and knees, late seventies. Wow. Yeah. And, and worked, you know, his last match was 2017. It's so amazing to think that too, because you look at the style that those guys have, and obviously they're working hard, but the, the amount of, of, of crazy bumps and high flying and all that sort of stuff was 10% of what the guys do now. I know, you know, it's amazing to me that, that, you know, he was hurt, not amazing, but the fact he was hurt so badly so early on in his career in comparison to guys now, it's like, man, those guys were we're working at a different level just from a toughness standpoint, I assume. Yeah, well, you know how how it was back then. Like, you the, you know, one of the things was is when you were hurt, you never took any days off. Right. You know, and I mean, like, and especially like when he was world champion, you know, he'd go everywhere. And again, like, you know, world champion, you're, you're legitimately doing a lot of 60-minute matches, maybe two a week. Wow. So even though you're not doing as much crazy stuff and high-flying stuff as now, and also the rings, you know, I mean, the rings were much harder. They weren't bump conducive rings in his, in, in some places were, but most places weren't. So there was so much stuff. And he was for his time, as far as big bumps, you know, he was, him and Harley race were like really the two guys that were like ahead of the curve when it came to the big bumps. So he was doing those, those slams off the top ropes and things like that, you know, before it became commonplace. Let's talk about Terry's run as the NWA champion. Cause once again, for people that are kind of just listening that don't know, it was very, very hard to become NWA champion to, to be nominated by the committee that was kind of behind the whole thing. And also too, is this the only brother combination that were NWA champions? I mean, when the NWA title meant anything, and I think even historically, they're the only two that were, the only brothers, and that's what they were always, you know, it was always promoted that way. And it, it was brilliant because you had two brothers who were, who had such great reputations in wrestling because Terry really made it as a national star. When Dory became world champion, Terry became a national star because it was perfect booking because they would kind of bill it like Terry was the tougher of the two, but Dory was the better technical wrestler. Technician, yeah, right. So Terry's role would be to go and to your territory, whether it's Jack Briscoe or Johnny Weaver or wrestling, Mr. Wrestling, Mr. Wrestling, whatever, you know, these guys that were 
the top contender for Dory in the region. And Terry would go in there with the idea that Terry is going to maim this guy. So Dory would never have to wrestle him. And so Terry would do the real wild style, but that's where Terry became a big main eventer. And then when Terry was champion, even though, you know, Dory was more the technical guy, the idea was, is Dory would go to all these cities. The idea wasn't that he would maim the guys, but the idea is that Dory who everyone had seen, he'd seen beat people for, for years and years and years. Dory was going to come and out-wrestle this guy and beat your local favorite. So they were knocked out of the number one contendership position, and he's never going to get the shot at Terry. And of course, Dory's job was to put the guy over. So it was really, for the NWA, the Funk brothers, both being such big stars with either one as world champion, was great for storylines. Mm-hmm. And I think that may have been among the reasons Terry got it. I mean, not that that he wasn't good enough because he was. I mean, it was when Jack Briscoe wanted out, it was Terry Funk or Harley Race. You know, that was the two choices. And Terry won the vote four to three with a proviso that when Terry wanted to give it up, it would go to Harley, which is what happened. But Terry gave it up much quicker than than he expected to because he went through the divorce. He loved Vicky so much. And it was just like he gave up, you know, the top spot in wrestling. Because he he had to win her back. He had to go home. Talk about kind of your personal relationship with Terry. I know you mentioned that you had a rough week because you had another really close friend pass away. Did you know Koichi at all in Japan? I, I don't think I did, unless Fumi introduced me to him at one point, but I, I don't recall for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he was a very important guy, you know, in the sense of, I knew from the United States standpoint, how somebody had sent me his obit in his local newspaper. In Japan, he was the same thing in Japan as he was in the United States. In Japan, he was the guy who brought all the American news to Japan because nobody else knew it and knew wrestling like he did and knew both languages. But anyway, yeah, it was a very, the Terry thing was, was very hard. Yeah. So when did you become close with Terry and what kind of a relationship did you guys have? I met him through a guy, an author who Terry really liked named Kit Bauman, who wanted to do a book on the history of Texas wrestling. And he talked him and Terry would, you know, he'd go to Amarillo with Terry and drink beer all weekend and tell stories. Kit knew me really, really well. And he just kind of put us in touch and, you got to remember, this is early 80s and I'm me, you know, like and, and Terry Funk is the son of Dory Funk Sr. So I always thought, you know, at the beginning that that it was going to be very, you know, it'd be one of those things where it's standoffish and not really, you know, we would talk and be cordial, you know, you know how it goes, but not not that we'd be buddies or anything like that. And he I mean, I don't think immediately warmed up to me, but within a year very much did. And I think maybe when. um by the time I went to Japan for the first time, which was 84, we were very, very close, you know, the, in the sense of, you know, they would invite me out to dinner after the shows in the different cities and just talk and talk and talk about everything. We just talked about wrestling um, all the time because he was such great with insight. I learned so much from him and he would always ask me about stuff going on elsewhere. You know, it was, it was we, we just had that in common and he loved he loved wrestling because it was like when he was five years old in 1949 he was already a wrestling fan and he was an insider because of his dad he would always tell me about you know the guys in the 40s and the guys in the 50s and the stories of the shooters and this this and that i mean and just all of the history you know just his thoughts on where it was going because one of the things with him is is he owned it you know him and dory owned a territory after the father died and it was 78. Like nobody thought territories were dying in 78. I, I mean, I wrote in 82 that inevitably there's only going to be a couple of companies because of cable TV. And that was right around the time I first started talking to him because we discussed that. But he had already known this in 78 and, you know, realized that the territory was going down 
long before anyone else did because he could see that the small territory in Amarillo, we don't have, we, we can't compete with Georgia wrestling on national television, let alone, you know, Vince's stuff wasn't on national TV then, but Georgia was, and he could just see the future. And I think also in Japan, I think, because he was always like, it's going to be two or three, maybe four survivors. But, you know, it's not going to be Kansas City's not going to survive. You know, Stampede's not going to survive. It can't. Right. We can't, we can't survive. The Northeast, they're going to survive. You know, I think he probably figured Vern would survive, you know, even though, but he didn't. But he, he knew that before anyone else, because he sold the territory in 78. And even when he sold it, you know, he told Murdoch and Mulligan who he sold it to. I don't think you should buy it. I think we really should shut it down. But they were adamant and they lost a ton of money trying to keep it afloat when the local fans, you know, trying to run weekly in these cities where you're starting to see big, bigger stars on television for free every week. And you're trying to bring the same, you know, 10, 12 guys into town weekly. It was just not going to be viable. And and it wasn't anymore. And he saw that early, early on. Before anybody else in wrestling even dreamed of it. Because even in 82, when I, when I first wrote it, which was, again, somewhat from him, nobody believed it. It was just like, oh, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? It's like, there's always going to be territories. They're going to be there forever. And this cable TV is just a fad anyway. You know what I mean? Right. So it's not going to change the world. But Terry saw it immediately. Like, this is, this is what's going to happen. You know, and he was right. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Let's talk about some of his more famous angles because he, he had some pretty outlandish things that he would do to try and get heat and try and do things that were very unique. <laughs> the motor oil one <laughs> yeah. was was quite the uh, episode. I mean, did you, did you ever you, see that one? I didn't see it, but I mean, I know about it and, and obviously you wrote about it. But talk to us about that one and some other ones that he might have done. Yeah. So, I mean, the motor oil, he, he, he just was doing a normal promo. And he poured a bunch of cans of motor oil. I think it was two cans over him. And it's just dripping into his eyes and into his mouth. You know, it was one of those things that was so insane. You just wouldn't think to do it. And he, you know, in hindsight, he told me it was one of the dumbest things he ever did. He just was, <laughs> you know, my, my hair was smelled like motor oil for weeks. And my <laughs> eyes were burned and, and, and all that. What was his point? Why, why, why did he pour motor oil over his head? Um, he wanted to inflame Mexicans because he said, I want to know what it feels like to be a Florida cracker. Oh, jeez. <laughs> It's funny because he was obviously not a racist guy at all and, and actually was very open-minded to, to things like that. But I just remember when I was a kid and he came to California and he was feuding with Chavo Guerrero and he did the most racist promo. I mean, I couldn't even believe that you could say this stuff on TV. I mean, I was like, it was just shocked me that you would go that far. But in those days, you know, that's what he did. I mean, he, right. And, you know, it worked, it drew. You know, that may have been another thing where he saw uh, ahead of time, because he did tell me about this one. He was, this is mid seventies and the Los Angeles wrestling was on TV on a Spanish station, not in every market he went to, but in some of the Texas markets where, where his territory went to. So he's doing this promo, not, not thinking at all that in his home base, Oh no, <laughs> you know, that anybody would ever see it. And then he went to his home base and he said like in the cities, you know, in the cities that got the, the show on Spanish international network, you know, he was getting booed and he just, 
you know, was trying to figure out why. And, but it was the Mexican fans just, they, they hated it. And it was just like, oh man, it's like, I never even thought of something I do on Los Angeles TV, having any thing in, in Texas. Plus, you know, the funks were always, obviously in West Texas, they were always for, for obvious reasons as baby faces, they were always almost honorary Mexicans to begin with, you know, they right. always team with Ricky Romero and always, um, you know, or, or, or Mil Mascaris or, but would always be guys who would, when a Mexican wrestler would come and get attacked, they were there to save him because as top baby face in your territory, I mean, that's the role that you play. Right. So he didn't have any idea that the, that television was going to be shown in his area, his neck of the woods. Right. <laughs> right. And that's, I think that's when he kind of saw that, like, it's starting to become, you know, it used to be so isolation. Like if you did something in one city, nobody outside that city knows about it. And so, you know, that's why you could do the same match every night sure. in, you know, different cities every week because the cities were far enough apart and nobody was going to all those cities except for some super hardcore fans. And they knew anyway. So that's okay. But that's, you know, when you start realizing that the world is getting smaller and, um, you know, you have to think about where's this tape going? Like when he would go to Georgia, you know, and do stuff, you know, he knew this is going all over the country. You know, he didn't make that mistake again. Did you ever go to his his house for the barbecues and all that stuff? Oh, I never did. I never did. I went to Amarillo once, but but I never went to his house, no. Yeah, I never I never got to go to one of those two. But my, my interactions with Terry were very short because we were only in the same company for short periods of time. I remember the, the next time we worked the Civic Center in Smoky Mountain, Terry was there. And that's when I broke my arm uh, oh, wow. earlier in the day. And I saw him and he's like, you know, are you all right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I just was being a dumbass. And he's like, ah, I made a career out of being a dumbass. Don't worry <laughs> about it, kid. You know, just stuff like that. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you just, you think of those things that just like the friendliest guy and even to like a young punk like me, still, still somebody could look up to and, and, and follow and be proud of. Yeah. I mean, he was just great with insight on everything, you know, I mean, he, you know, even on the world and stuff, but, but his mind worked in wrestling so uniquely. Um, and I mean, he used to like, you know, like if I would watch a match, like I remember once I was talking to him about, I, I got this tape of some stuff from the seventies. And it's like, you know, because you know, every generation evolves, right? Right. Okay. You know, like yeah, Jack Briscoe's really good, you know, no doubt. Right. But most of these guys are not that good. And he just starts, you don't know what you're talking about. And he just starts this explanation. It's like, you know, it's like, let's say this is 1988 uh, that, that I'm telling him this, right? And I'm watching a tape from 1975 and he just goes like, I thought, and I thought this was great advice. I tell people this, they don't listen either, but I, I did because everything Terry Funk told me I listened to. Yeah. And he just goes, these guys are wrestling in, uh, let's just say, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana in 1975. They are not wrestling in San Jose, California in 1989. They're not wrestling for you. They were wrestling for their program and what they were doing. And most of the moves that you you know, that they're doing now, half of them weren't even invented. They wouldn't have even thought of it. And unless you are in the place and the time, you can't really fairly judge. Right. It's an art form of place and time. And, and, you know, like his thing would be, I would go and some of the cities were more brawling cities. Some of the cities are more technical cities in my own company. It's like, you had to learn to adapt to those fans. And it, the thing that I think that I learned the most from him, that's so valuable is, is when you watch wrestling, you have to think of how it works for the audience on that night and how the, you know you adapt to them, but also you lead them. He always he always used the word manipulate, you know, which was his word, mm. right? It's like it's like you have to be a master manipulator. It's like you were the 
you're the one leading them. I mean, you have to figure out what they're going to pop for, but you are the one leading them. You can't also just follow them and, and be a sheep to them. And they're not, they're not the ones that are going to tell you what to do, but you, you don't ignore them either. And yeah. And usually manipulate the word you manipulate, but in a positive sense, it's not a negative thing. Right, right, right. Yeah. Whenever he talked about booking, he would always use He didn't really use the word booking to me. He always used the word manipulating. Like Eddie Graham was the greatest manipulator, but it was, it was meant as a positive. It's, it's like manipulate people's It's basically, I think manipulate people's emotions to where they, they get very, very happy or very, very mad or very something, right, to where they have to come back, they want to come back, they really love you, or they really hate you. You don't want to be someone who's who they don't care about, essentially. You mentioned Eddie Graham and Terry a few times. What were some of the things that, that stood out for you that Terry did with Eddie Graham? Well, I mean, I, I think Terry really admired Eddie Graham's booking. Because, you know, he would he would bring that up, especially like in the in the 70s. I think Florida had a really good territory. But, you know, a lot of also is, is it was Florida and, and all the top guys would would, you know, and he even talked about it himself. You know, you would go to Florida for a lot less money. Like he goes like we had to pay guys a lot more than they paid in Florida if you wanted good guys because you know, who wanted to come to Amarillo? But everybody wanted to go to Tampa, you know. But he was a great admirer of, you know, the week, you know, week to week booking because they ran all their cities, you know, on a weekly rotation. So you got to always come back. You always had to get the people back every single week. And Eddie Graham was like the master of finishes to bring them back and short-term programs, but long-term programs as well. He always admired Eddie, you know, I think is one of the real great minds of wrestling. How about his work with Lawler? They did some great stuff, including the empty arena match, which is something that kind of people have tried to duplicate a few times. But that actually, did that that actually draw in Memphis? Or tell us about that. That's the funniest story because... They did the empty arena match, which I thought was one of the greatest things I ever saw, you know, between Lance Russell and Lawler and Terry. I mean, you have three of the absolute masters, just masters of of the business of wrestling. And Terry told me, like, they went back and we didn't really draw. So he thought it was a dumb idea. But it became so famous that years later, people would talk about it. And I mean, like, what it was, 20 23 years later, I think they did a match built around that angle that actually drew the biggest crowd in Memphis in years and years and years. So at that point, he acknowledged it was a it was a it was a hell of an angle because if if you can make people remember that angle and show that clip 23 years later and and draw the biggest crowd in the city in years and years and years, non WWE WWE actually drew bigger, but but you know what I'm saying for a non WWE show. It must have been a great angle. But like I remember at first, I would go, oh, that empty arena, the greatest thing is it didn't draw money. Wasn't that great? You know, like that's the key. Did it draw? You know, that's he would always emphasize that. But, you know, again, historically, you know, when people talk, him and Lawler is, is a legendary feud there. And he was always very – Lawler was one of those guys where a lot of people – because it's Memphis kind of, a lot of people look down on Memphis wrestling because it wasn't like St. Louis or Tampa, right. you know, where there's a lot of wrestling. It was more just brawling and everything. And so Lawler being the king, you know, of Memphis, you know, some people were just like, ah, he's not really that good. It's just Memphis. Those people will buy anything. And Terry was always Jerry Lars, like one of the greatest talkers, one of the greatest babyface. He always considered Jerry Lawler, like, you know, one of the all-time greats when other people didn't, you know, because he, he understood, you know, again, it's time and place and time and, and that time and that place. I mean, there was nobody week after week, you know, even Dusty, I think, who was quite like Jerry Lawler in Memphis. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. 
bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Talk for the last few years. Had you been able to talk to Terry recently? Because he's been having, I, I know for a couple of years, I tried to invite him on my cruise as the guest of honor. And the really? Ever, yeah. The closest I ever got was, I think, 19. Uh, well, it'd be 20, the one that you were on. But he, he, he was kind of not. Oh, yeah, he would have been so great. But he wasn't. Oh, uh, I would have loved to have been on that cruise with him. That would have been, yeah. been like one of the high. I mean, I loved that cruise anyway, but. But oh my God! What year did his wife pass away? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, so it was right after that, and his daughter would have to come with them. And I tried. I actually even got on the phone, not with him, but with whoever was representing him, and he just decided he didn't, he couldn't make it or didn't want to do it. But kind of talk about your relationship with him over the last last few years. Yeah, it was hard because, um, you know, he had the dementia, and I, I mean, I just like remember I was like in front of a movie theater waiting for my kids, and somebody called me up and just goes, "Did you hear Terry Funk has dementia?" And I was just like, you know, I was like heartbroken. Right. And then I, I called him and I had like a really nice conversation with him. So my mind was kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, it was fine. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, was it like it was 10 years ago? No, but you know, who at 75 and 65, I expect that from older wrestlers. It wasn't anything bad. And I was so relieved, but of course it was wrong. And then, you know, over the time it, it did get worse and worse. And, um, I just remember, you know, as oh god. So the um I'm going to cry. Mm-hmm. The um uh god. So you know the song Puff the Magic Dragon, right? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's a an a song to me that meant meant a lot to me because of my son, you know, when he was really little, you know, he he had drew, drew dragons all over the house. He had the the dragon under that lived under his bed that we couldn't see, you know what right, I mean? Right. Right. right, right yeah, yeah, kid, yeah. Right. So it was a really unique time. And then one day the, you know, the dragon drawings went down and, you know, the dragon wasn't under his bed anymore. And I always would think of that song, you know, like that was like, it was almost traumatic to me in, in its own right. weird way because, because I grew up with that song. And then that song meant so much to me because he became little Jackie paper. Right. Yeah. So I had called, him. you know, whenever I would call him, he was always, he was so much better than me. He was great at returning calls, you know, and, and, and having good conversations. And he must have had like, he must have had like a hundred people or 200 people right. he did this with, because I'm, I mean, I remember him saying like, oh yeah, I talked to this guy, you know, every week. And I mean, like, I think that as he got older and, um, you know, was pretty much retired and he was, you know, financially set, he loved keeping in touch. Like he loved going to Cauliflower Alley, right. Things like that, you know, the different things like that. And then yeah. when, when he couldn't go, and I, th- I think the year, the year that I went was, was awarded at Cauliflower Alley. You know, I, m- I remember talking to him and um, he wanted to go, but, and, and cause he was going to be the MC and he couldn't go, but it was just like, okay, but I just, this is, this is well after this. And I just remember I called him and left a message and I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back. And after like three days, it was just like, I just kept playing that freaking song in my head. You know, it's like, oh my God, you know, by this point I know about the dementia. I mean, I'm talking to him and he's telling me the same story that he just told me three minutes ago and he's laughing, but he's laughing and it's just, it's still Terry Funkin and I love the guy. So that was, I, I never talked to him when I heard that he was really sick. I called both of his numbers and I don't even think that they went through. They might have, cause I know people who talked to him since then, you know, like some of his closer friends, but I had not talked to him. I don't know. It might've been 
a year, maybe, maybe less, but it wasn't like in the last couple of months. I mean, the last time I, I tried was, was when I heard this one before his birthday. So it's before June. And, you know, I was pretty much told that, um, it's, you know, going to be his last birthday and you can just yeah. imagine. Right. And, um, I, I was dreading that day, you know, and I'm sure everybody was at all of his friends. It's, it's amazing to me though. Like when I look at all of these guys, these wrestlers, you know, a lot of the ECW guys, but a lot of the wrestlers that just, you know, the Tommy dreamers and, and, you know, those type of guys, Mick Foley's that just, you know, like you see the stuff that they wrote about him and, 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 did you think Jesse wrote about him? No. Jesse Ventura? No. Jesse Ventura wrote something. Like, Jesse wrote that he was getting his first, this is in Portland Territory, he's getting his first world title match, and Terry Funk is is there, and he's got like 101 and a half, 102 fever, and Don Owen wants him to do 60, and Jesse couldn't do 60, he basically said he couldn't do 60 healthy, Right. <laughs> and Terry was just like, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And, you know, Jesse was just remarking like that, that he thought he was the best guy he'd ever worked with. Last few things, Dave. I mean, what what overall is Terry's influence on the business? Because you mentioned so many guys and you, you talked about, you know, the, the Tommy Dreamers. But I'm even thinking of Eddie Kingston and I'm thinking of Moxley, you know, guys Moxley. who are saying basically that. I mean, yeah, I mean, both those guys are modern day funks, you know, if there ever is one as far as their style and then how they look at the business. His influence is, is so infinite because it started in the 70s 80s 90s i mean definitely one of the most influential pro wrestlers of all time would you agree with that absolutely all over the world you know i mean when you look at the different things you know from you know like we talked about tag team tournament explosive barbed wire stuff that he was a big part of the uh you know the origins of and popularizing of but just that that style and i think that a lot of guys you know um it's funny because moxley and and I had talked about him and Moxley, you know, grew up watching Chainsaw Charlie. You know what I mean? Right, you know, yeah, that yeah. era. So he didn't really like he didn't know the Terry Funk era that that I knew or even that that you would have known, you know, being much older, you know, than than he is. So it wasn't that big of a thing. But he said that when he went to um in, in developmental Florida Championship Wrestling, you know, they let you get tapes and he saw a tape of Terry Funk for whatever reason. And then all of a sudden it was like the light went off. It's like that's the that's yeah. the guy and you know you could see he he really tries you know i mean he's the closest thing today to terry funk would be would be moxley you know in the sense of i mean they're different they're for sure different but but that would be one but i think that just the style i think he's a great influence on you even if you don't know it just just again like you talk about reinvention you know it's like yeah because he was like that was the one thing with him is that he could always change and he understood his role but yeah, I, I I think he was, and I I think I think also when it comes to like just booking and and ideas and 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 things like that, I think that like you know what he did kind of paved a lot of the ways of what people that didn't even know him learned. Kind of like what I would say with with Dynamite Kid, who I also consider right. one of the most influential wrestlers today. Even though most of the people who watch him probably never you know may have seen him on tape, but, yeah. but don't even know. You know what I mean? It's like they may know Chris Benoit or they may not even know Chris Benoit, but, but the style that is that kind of style, that hard, sure. that hard, tight style, it's like Dynamite Kid to me is like almost a prototype of, of what a lot of wrestling turned into. But Terry's another way with the brawling and the selling and the things like that. Just being ahead of the curve too, being ahead of the game and thinking, thinking forward, you know? Well, he was definitely, he was definitely that. And, and, and I mean, like yeah. to me, the most valuable thing I knew about him was, was him always 
being him being way ahead and then telling me like watch japan watch mexico right watch right. the women you know watch the independence you know just and, and it's like you want to be there ahead you don't want to be on time because this thing if you're if you're even you know with the times it's going to pass you back by the next day type of thing and he was always you know up until you know, late seventies when he just, you know, at, at, you know, there was a point where he, he just stopped following it. He, you know, he watched, watched on TV or whatever, but I think he just wanted to, you know, enjoy his family and everything like that. He was not as tuned in to wrestling at the end, but I would say well into his seventies when, when, when we would talk, it was always like, he was always asking like how Vince's business was doing. Is anyone coming up? You know, like that. I mean, we talked a little bit of, of AEW, but he did not watch it much because that was already at the point where, where he wasn't yeah. really, following it i wish sometimes i wish that he was 15 years well he was 15 years younger he would be in AEW, um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and right, he'd be teaching be. you know all the guys and he'd be doing freaking hurricane i mean it's so funny <laughs> i don't know if he'd be doing poison ranas but i know for sure he'd be taking them better than anyone <laughs> you, you know what i mean when you think about those spots like it's that you take them in a different way than everybody else but he wouldn't have you know been like you know he was never Never in in my day, but also always, you know, respected his day. You know, like yeah, like he would always reminisce about the the guys from the fifties and the sixties and how great they were at what they did, but not to the idea that that nobody could ever be better either. It was just a just a a great, brilliant guy, but but also just a the nicest guy who knew a lot and was not afraid to teach you and if you wanted to know about anything you know he would help you and just very empathetic towards everyone and we never talked about his acting you know and i mean yeah i was going to mention that before we left i know he he was in acting obviously roadhouse he was great in that why do you think he never or why did he stop acting why didn't he do more he wanted to it just didn't work out i mean didn't work out yeah so he he and i don't remember how he got in touch with stallone it might have been at a wrestling show because stallone sometimes went to wrestling shows but um you know, him and Stallone got got pretty tight when he did Paradise Alley. Right. And uh, Terry, oh, you want to talk about influence. I mean, Terry was the guy who got Hulk Hogan that role in Rocky Three, oh, which wow. changed the entire, because that was, I mean, I think Hogan still would have been a giant star no matter what, but no doubt that jump-started him something fierce. But Terry got that, and Terry, you know, there was a point where where Hogan, you know, was, you know, very depressed and delusioned about, you know, the, when you start in the business and you're really not making money and um, he was delusioned, like, and Terry was just like, you've got, you've got a great, great future in this business, you know, do not quit. You know, it will, it will pan out for you. You know, he, he helped him there, but he would go to, um, from Amarillo to Los Angeles, like, I don't know, maybe like one week a month or two weeks a month and just audition, audition, audition. But it just, you know, it just got hard not making any money and everything like that. Yeah, sure. Sure. When he did the, the, um, the paradise alley, he thought, I remember him telling me, he goes, I thought that like, I'm done with wrestling. I'm going to be an actor because, because the money was so much better acting in those days. I mean, he made way more in, in doing that movie. And he just goes, this is my new career. I'm an actor. And he just thought by doing that movie, that would shoot him to the top. Yeah, yeah. But all these offers would come in and, and he would be so good and all this and nothing really followed. And so, um, you know, he got a TV series once he did a couple other movies. He loved doing them, but that wasn't enough to make a living. Right. And, and I think that, you know, just doing all those auditions and, and everything, it was just hard. I think if he had his way, 
you know, and he could have been a big star in acting, you know, and stopped wrestling, he would have done it or maybe just dropped into wrestling, you know, in between like, like some of the guys, but he just didn't get enough roles to, to retire and, and become an actor. Last question for you, Dave, and it might, it might be a multi answers to this. What's your favorite Terry Funk match? Um, boy, the I quit match with Ric Flair is way up there. Was that the first match you ever gave five stars to? No, but the first match that Jim Cornette ever gave five stars to was Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. The original star system this is a trivia was, was created by Jim Cornette and Norman Dooley, who was one of Jim Cornette's good friends. Mm-hmm. And it was to four. Four was the tops, which is hilarious. And then they saw Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler, and it's just like, this is way better than the four-star match. <laughs> That's great. So, so, so that. But um, I've, I've heard you talk about this, and you and I have talked about this. When you were a kid and you saw Randy Savage and Ricky Steamboat, you know, at WrestleMania right. three. And, you know, you go to the school and you just practiced all the moves. It was like the ultimate, ultimate match for your, you and your lifetime at that time, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so for me, in my schoolyard, it was Terry Funk and Jack Briscoe when he won the world title in December 1975 in Miami Beach, Florida, because they played it on our, you know, San Francisco show, you know, because the world title just changed hands. And it's like they played the match. And it was so, we, we had really good wrestling here, but this was so far advanced. Like, this is like six years ahead of what we were. And we were ahead of most territories. These guys just doing the suplexes and the counters and the smoothness and kind of a Dory Funk Jr. style because it's a world title change. So Terry didn't, you know, you wanted to make it look legitimate like a sports contest, but in an entertaining way. And I just remember like, I mean, I couldn't do it now, but as a kid, like I could tell you the last eight minutes move 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 every single thing they did and and the finish which was the um jack goes for the figure four and terry does the inside cradle as the counter which i had never seen done before it probably had been but right it was like this novel finish dr wagner jr loved that finish he tried to do it forever you know the figure four in into that because it was just like oh my god he countered the figure four which had been jack briscoe's <laughs> yeah. move the minute he had it on it's like that's the end of the match right i mean not like now where you expect that like then you didn't expect right. that so that to me as a kid was the greatest match i'd ever seen and and had so much effect like if i watched it now i, I actually watched it a couple months ago and and it was it was very intriguing and and then Terry's interview after was really good but, but on the Florida show. It's it's on YouTube somewhere. But that was one of the most memorable ones. The um, the Funks. I was at a show in Nagoya, Japan with the Funks against um, Brody and Hanson. Wow. You know, it was just a war, you know, and, and the old Japan where they're brawling in the crowd and, you know, everyone's running, you know, not, you know, what I mean? they're running <laughs> yeah. away from Brody. They're running away from Hanson and you're close enough to the action and it's like, you know, no holes, if you know what I mean. It's like, it's like they're yeah. pounding on each other. And it's just like, like, you know, they're pounding on each other. And everyone <laughs> sees it when they're close in that crowd. And I mean, the intensity that those guys had was, was incredible. And, and another, you know, not so much a great match, but, but the Funks against Hanson and Gordy in Terry Funks first of a hundred retirement matches. Um, <laughs> But that one, you know, the the famous one in Tokyo, that match, I think I, I would almost recommend if you ever want to see a Terry Funk match to watch that. Not because, I mean, the match is really, really good, of course, but it's more you get to see how over Terry Funk was with, do you ever see the stuff with like the cheerleaders and all that? In Japan? In Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he had that period in when he was, 
kind of like the, you know the rock star Terry Funk, you know, you know yeah. where he had the, the cheerleaders cheering for him, and that 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 music was so iconic, you know, like everybody would just go crazy when they would hear his entrance music, which you know, like that happens now, but this is. 1983 that didn't happen in 1983 different thing anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> that was like that was like years ahead of its time you know the, the big entrance music pop and um you know the merchant i remember going and you know again like we would go there and get merchandise before any u.s promotions would have merchandise you know and he did he did um the record album uh, which was brutal by the way but <laughs> but you know he tried to be because he was like he was like a rock star there not as a singer but as a personality and right right yeah Larger than life. Oh yeah, and it's just it's just amazing. It's like an amazing visual to see, you know, them walking to the ring and the crowd just trying to like just touch him, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, man. Well, a lot a lot of great memories. Like I said, I don't think we'll ever see another uh, another like Terry Funk for so many different reasons. But it was it's great to talk to you about him, Dave, and get some memories for sure. Yeah, thanks so much. I I'm glad I'm glad we got to talk about him because um, he's somebody that like, I just hope that like 50 years from now, you know, that, that people understand how, how really great he was and how important he was and, you know, what a great guy he was, which is, which is another part of it. Like you talk to anyone who, who knew him and just how much they revered him and loved him. You know, I just, I just, I just hope like he's, he's a name in this business that, that should be remembered forever. It's funny too, because he's one of those guys as well. Like every top guy, someone will say, oh, he's a, yeah. or he's a jerk or whatever. I've never heard anyone say that about Terry Funk ever. Yeah. The only stuff bad was I remember in 1989 when people were going like, he's too old to draw money and this thing with Ric Flair <laughs> isn't going to work. And it's Terry <laughs> Funk. He's from the seventies. And some of the guys got it. I'm sure that they didn't, you know, I'm sure that later they understood, but I know like some of the younger guys that were there, you know, didn't like the idea of putting him over because Right. We're buffed and he's an old man, but I, I'm sure that every one of them now understands. But yeah, as far as, you know, he was so giving. I mean, it was never about Terry Funk getting over. It was about Dusty Rhodes getting over. It was about yeah. JYD getting over. It was about, did you ever see the match he had with Eddie Guerrero in 1989? Of course. It's a, yeah. We didn't even mention that one. Yeah. So his mission was to try and get Eddie signed at WCW. It's a great match and they didn't sign him. You know, I remember his, his comments to me, you know, like, I mean, it was a couple of days after the match aired and he was just like, how did they not see it? It goes like, did I miss something? And go, no, I, I saw it because he was again, another example ahead of his time, like that style, some of that, some right. those moves, right. Nobody did those moves then. So they didn't really understand. Plus Eddie, he was very small, but he would have gotten over if they had, you know, if they'd signed him, yeah. he was so spectacular. It would have worked, but they didn't know that, but Terry knew it. Terry saw it. Yeah, right from the yeah, start. Yeah, Terry, Terry, Terry knew it, but yeah, they didn't sign him. Well, dude, like I said, it's been great talking to you about this and uh, so many great moments to watch on YouTube for everybody listening to this. And uh, long live Terry Funk, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Okay, thanks, Chris.